Hello, I'm Nicole Abadie and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Today, it's my very great privilege to be talking to American writer Richard Ford, recently described as one of the great masters of American literature. He's here today to talk about his latest book, Sorry for Your Troubles, a collection of short stories published by Bloomsbury. Richard had been writing for almost 50 years. His first novel, A Piece of My Heart, was published in 1976. His third, The Sports Writer, published in 1986, introduced readers to one of the great characters in American literature, the legendary Frank Bascom. Frank returned in Independence Day, published in 1995, which won both the Pulitzer Prize and the Penn Faulkner Award, the only book to have done so. It has been referred to as the definitive novel of the post-war generation. Richard has since published a third novel and a book of short stories about Frank, as well as a number of other stories and short story collections. In 2017, he published a memoir about his parents entitled Between Them. And in 2019, he was awarded the Library of Congress Prize for American Fiction for Lifetime Achievement. He has also won a number of international prizes. Richard lives in Maine with his wife, Christina, and teaches at Columbia University, where he's Professor of the Humanities. He has been called the leading short story writer in the United States. And this was my favorite, the God of Small Stories. So we're <laughs> Richard, welcome. Well, thank you, Nicole. It's nice to get to lay eyes on you. It's nice to get to talk to you. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. Would you like to start by reading an extract from one of your stories, please? Sure. This is, I'll be glad to. Thank you for asking me. What I'm going to read to you is a, a little passage from the last of these stories, which is called Second Language. It's a novella, really. And it's a, a, a story about two people who have sort of fallen together in middle age and the gentleman's wife has passed away and the woman's husband is, who's Irish and is just simply gone. And, and they've, she's a realtor and he's a rich guy and they've fallen together and they get married and, and ultimately they get divorced almost you know as soon as they get married. And this little passage that I'm going to read for you is about Charlotte thinking about Jonathan and why she needs to divorce him. Divorce Charlotte felt would be a much better and easier state to maintain than marriage. It took being married to a nice man like Jonathan, offering her the desirable things he offered her, to make this clear. She'd been divorced from Francis Dolan for four years and didn't feel they were forever banished from each other's lives, although they'd never seen each other again, never spoke. She and Jonathan would do this better, there would be no anxieties, no sense of always puzzling, letting someone down. If they stayed married, which she now understood they would not, she would end up saying words she did not want to say, harmful things she'd heard other people say. She would grow somber and stop being gay and unpredictable and beautiful. Marriage would change her and that she didn't want. Jonathan was only 53. He could find someone to be deep with. And in that way, as the lighthouse on Isle's head rose below them there in a plain, and the whitely diminishing sea with tiny sails upon it stretched eastward where there were green islands and what seemed to be mountains, 
In that way, the matter of her marriage to Jonathan Bell was decided. Richard, thank you. Of course, I've never been divorced, never really ever contemplated it, but there was something, something kind of delicious about, about getting to write that. It's one of the things that, 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 that writing fiction allows you, which is to, to write about things that you would never do and write about things that you have never done. And there's a, kind of a wonderful delectability about writing these things that you, you know, know nothing about. Richard, you didn't grow up in a bookish family. You said your dad didn't read and your mum tended to read bestsellers, the local, the bestsellers from the local library. And I know that you weren't a big reader as a child and, in fact, you were dyslexic. When did you start to enjoy literature? Be reading literature? Yes. Mm, that's, that's a good question, and that's a hard question because I, I read it dutifully at first. I, I read it uh, at first because... I had never read it before and had failed at reading it. And so I read it in a kind of a driven way, which I can't really uh, say was pleasurable. Um, I, I remember when I was in graduate school, I, I read Frank O'Connor's story called um, Guest to the Nation. And you get to the end of that story, Guest to the Nation, which is about um, the Irish Revolution, really, in 1916, about... Irish revolutionaries who capture two English boys and ultimately assassinate them. And the last line of that story is, in anything that happened to me afterwards, I never felt the same about again. And I, I think something, when I read that story, something clicked and I thought, ooh, that affects me strongly. There's, you know, other things that I had read had affected me too, but this affected me in a way that just seemed pronounced. And so I, I think I thought maybe at that point, Ooh, wouldn't it be nice to do something like that, write something like that, that would make someone else feel that way? And then you studied creative writing, didn't you, at graduate school? Well, studied is probably not the right word. I think there's, a mis there's probably a misnomer outside of America about what one does in a, in a writing course in the United States of study. I mean, you, you certainly can find things to study, but what you're studying is Jane Austen and what you're st studying is George Eliot and you're studying Dickens and you're studying Hardy. That's the study. In other words, it's the kind of thing that anybody would do if he or she were living in a garret in Paris. And then you have in your course uh, some really good writer, and I had E.L. Doctorow in Galway Canal, who are reading your work. And then they're not, they're not pronouncing black letter law to you. They're not saying this. Uh, this is how that's done. It's not like that. It's just you're free to do what you want to do. She or he reads it. And then that person, in this case, Edgar Doctorow, would say, I thought this about what you wrote. I thought that about what you wrote. And that's as much study as it actually is. It's, not, it's, it's actually a victimless crime. Richard, I think you said that with your dyslexia, that, if anything, has made you a better reader because you read more slowly. And so you take... Yes. Maureen, would you like to talk a little bit about that? Well, I mean, dyslexia is a condition, and, I don't, and I'm not a scientist, so I'll only, I'll only describe it sort of as I understand it. It's a, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a brain condition in which what you see, if you're reading or if you're even looking around, has some difficulty getting imprinted into your brain. So it becomes, it becomes cognitive only with some difficulty. And so reading was, for me, very slow, always. And it's still very slow. What I just read to you just now 
is probably about as fast as I can read without reading silently. But what that causes and allows is then a concentration on what words look like, how they sound, also what they mean, uh, how many syllables they have, how many uh, this kind of sound or that kind of sound um, they contain. And, and those are issues for someone who wants to be a writer and who wants to write sentences that other people need to read. But those are issues to, 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 be, to, be, to be prized. I mean, I'm, I'm basically um, you know, commissioning the reader to read this sentence and read these words, and so I choose them all on the basis of those very qualities that I'm sensitive to. You've written a number of novels, and you've also are very well known for your short stories. You've written a few collections before this one. You've described writing short stories as being like a high wire act. Yep. Like another one, twirling a plate on a stick. I think that may have been <laughs> Jason Steger recently. What do you mean by that? What is it like to write short stories? Uh, what is it like to write short stories? Well, you know from the get-go that you're doing something that is uh, small. You're not you're not writing a novel. You're not writing a Don Juan. You know, you're you're, you're writing. You're doing something that that's small, and that in a way takes the pressure off of you a little bit. Because if you fail, you failed at something small, rather than if you failed at writing Don Juan, you failed at writing an enormous poem. But um, it's 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 a not it's a process not very different from writing a novel, only smaller. So you have smaller raw materials. You automatically in, invoke a kind of mental economy which says, I can't go very far with this. I can't go very far with that. And what that does is to say to yourself silently that, okay, I can't go very far with this. I don't have that much scope to use. I'm going to have to get done what I want to get done pretty quickly. And, and, that's, and that accounts for the intensity of it. I mean, it's a received form. It's not a form I invented in any way. I kind of, other, other than, well, different from novels. Novels, even though they are a received form also, they are completely without limits, without rules. Stories have a kind of inherent rule, which is that they be short, whatever you think short is. So when you inherit that rule, which says stories are short, then that invokes a certain kind of economy and you get over, you get done what you want to do as, as expeditiously as you can. But I mean, but you know, Nicole, it's a thing human beings do. I don't, I don't want to try to make it sound as if it were something that is extraordinary. You know, and when you say that people have said that I was a really good short story writer, I think to myself, God, I think I'm just a schlepper, you know. I don't think I'm, I think I'm just kind of, piddling away at it. Do you start with an ending in mind for a short story? Sometimes. Sometimes you do. Sometimes one does. Um, and, and yet when you start with an ending in mind, which occasionally happens, you get to the point where that ending is going to occur and you change it and you completely abandon your idea because getting to that ending is, is inevitably a, a process of, of hitting and missing and missing and hitting and you don't quite know how you're going to get there. You just hope you will get there with the goods, so to say. And sometimes you get there with the goods, but it dictates another ending. So you're not, you're not at the mercy of your plan. 
Let's talk now about Sorry for Your Trouble. You have said that you like to connect your short stories by theme. And this collection, there are nine short stories, or I think sometimes you talk about them as seven short stories and two novellas. There are two that are much longer than the others. You said that you like to have a theme that connects your short stories to make the reading experience more integrated and for the book as a whole to have more of an impact. What is the connection between these nine stories? Well, I think, that, I think in this instance, the title says it. It's, it's Sorry for Your Trouble, which is a, which is a phrase out of Anglo-Irish. Well, I won't say Anglo-Irish. I'll say Irish in English, which is different from Anglo-Irish. Um, um, but it's just one of those kinds of um, cliched ways in which people almost uh, meaningly express cons consolation and sorrow sympathy and empathy sorry for your trouble someone dies you go to their house they're all laid out there and you say to the survivors sorry for your trouble sorry for your trouble i think everybody in this book has a has a kind of a trouble um a, a, a fairly a fairly uh, quotidian trouble someone's abandoned them in some instances someone's died someone suffered a failure someone suffered a loss and and the stories in a way are a kind of consolation against those sorrows. Um, so, you know, I've always said that that, that stories, and I'm, by which I mean novels, also, they're they're, cons they're they're consolations. If I can make you read my story, even though it's about something dire, um, I will, in a way, give you a little bit of reprieve. So, stories provide a little reprieve from the sorrows that the stories themselves contain. There's a connection to Ireland in many of these stories. Now, I know yes. you've said that it's not, that's not the most significant thing, but I think you said that the stories could have been set in Latvia for all you cared, that the exactly. important thing was the story. But I did still want to ask you about your personal connection to Ireland. Could you just tell us what that is? Well, my granny was from Ireland and my grandfather was also on my father's side, although... I, forties, uh, before anybody ever told me I was Irish, and by then I was just about to sort of get lucky with my with, with my books. And one of the things that happened when I got lucky with my books was that I was taken to Ireland, publishing books in Ireland. Um, and then when I did that, I thought, "Ooh, gee, I I have people who are from here." It was kind of fortuitous, really, um, but also fortunate uh, because I liked it, and so. Over the course of years since then, which is 30 plus, I have repeatedly gone to Ireland, gone to Ireland with books always. And ultimately, Trinity College asked me, because they knew that I liked Ireland, would I come over there and teach? And I was, I was flattered and, and glad to get to do that. So I did that for you know, six or seven years, taught in Trinity. And uh, in the course of those years, I developed lots more friends and and, 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 you know, what I did was just what I do everywhere. I just kind of live. I, I don't live as a writer. Writer is, is always part of my kit, but I sort of live life first. And I looked around a few years ago and I thought, gee, I have all this Irish experience, although it's second, you know, secondary experience. I'm not Irish. I don't want to pretend to be. But I could put Irish into stories. I could talk about Americans who were Irish we talk about Americans who go to Ireland, Irish who go to America, 
and I could do that. So it was just in that way, as you said, I, it could have been about Latvia. It was If I'd gone to Latvia, it would have been the same. I just used the materials that Ireland gave me to try to make stories that I would have wanted to write in. I also couldn't help but notice, being an ex-lawyer myself, that there are a number of your protagonists are lawyers. Yes. Out yes. of the nine, I think three or four of them. Any, signific- yes. any significance in that choice? Well, I studied law and I went to law school for a while. And I, I, but, but there's, a kind of a, there's a kind of a sneaky reason to put lawyers into, into these stories. One is that lawyers inevitably elicit a certain kind of uh, apathy or enmity among readers, as we know, recovering lawyers. And, and yet, for the writer who is trying to make his or her stories as intelligent as they can be, lawyers, lawyers are a pretty good vessel for those kinds of intelligences that I'm interested in. I mean, they live lives, even though they may be creeps and snakes. They still have marriages and children, and they have woes and troubles and sorrows and joys. And, and, and so, but it, and they allow me, lawyers, they allow me to make my stories contain the most intelligent things that I can make them contain, which is my, high, my highest goal. I want to write stories that are smart on the page, because I think that's, for me, the most interesting thing that literature can be is smart on the page. As you've said, the the main connection or I'm careful about using the word theme, but let's use it for want of a better word of these stories is loss. All of these people have suffered loss and they're in some way grieving. It's either death or it's divorce or it's some other kind of loss. We have a boy who loses his father when he's only 16. We have men whose wives have left them because they've been cheating on them or because the wives have fallen in love with someone else. In one case, a husband and wife witness a terrible accident which precipitates a wife leaving. One of your characters who's devastated by his wife's suicide realises or says that no one grieved the same but everyone grieved. Is that one of the issues that you wanted to explore in this collection, how different people deal with loss or grief? Yes. (laughs) <laughs> because I, I, I think that one of the burdens, and we all lose things, we all experience loss, but one of the burdens that we um, bear is, is that convention is quite inarticulate and in most ways quite unhelpful in, in allowing us or teaching us um, how to grieve. Um, it, it basically tells us what we're supposed to feel. Uh, and, and, and in fact, we feel as individuals what we feel. And I know this for a fact because of how I felt when my father died. When, when my father died, I was 16 and, and he died suddenly. And, um, and I was very aware when my father died that I didn't cry. And, and, and over the course of the months after his death, which was very sudden, he was young, 55 years old. I, I, kept realizing that I didn't feel the way I felt I was supposed to feel. And I don't know why I thought I knew how I was supposed to feel, but when you were a kid, you were a victim of convention. My mother went crazy. And I, and I used to think to myself over the course of those months, what's wrong with you? you you're, you're, you're not as sad as you, as you should be that your father has died. 
and, and over the course of many, many years of thinking about this and feeling how I felt, I, I realized that when my father died, I loved him and he, and he lost his life and that was the saddest thing in the world, certainly for him. And it was sad for me, but for me also, it meant that there was one fewer people in the world who were telling me what to do and, and, and who were looking out for me and who were, you know, telling me how life was and telling me how life should be and that there was a kind of a freedom with that. And again, over the course of many years, I came to understand that that's what life is. Life is not about conventional grieving. Life is about very subjective grieving. And that it's, and, and, and it's, it's, not to, it's, it's not to find fault with yourself if you don't grieve the way you think you're supposed to. I mean, you can ask yourself that. You can ask yourself, is there something wrong with me? But you can also come to the conclusion, no. Something is not wrong. And that can come from challenging yourself, but also being challenged by others. So coming back to your collection, in your story, Displaced, the 16-year-old protagonist has lost his father and he confesses at the end to a a friend that he feels bad, that he didn't feel exactly what you just said. He feels bad that he didn't feel sad enough when his father died. And somehow saying that to someone helps to make it a little bit better. It does. And, the, and another perspective of having that, um, if you like, guilt imposed upon you is the story of, I think it's Peter and May. That his wife has committed suicide after a long marriage, a 30-year marriage. after And, can, and cancer her bat- in her life. Her battle with cancer. And their adult daughter just can't seem to really relate to him and, in fact, seems quite intolerant and impatient with him until he has to say, look, I'm grieving in my own way. We all grieve. I think it was him that said the line that yes. I quoted. We all grieve in our own way. Don't don't judge me, but believe me, I am grieving. But we just all do it in our own ways. And yes, right, right. yeah. I mean, I mean, stories, fiction, whatever you call them, novels, novellas, stories, they make life their subjects, and um, by making life their subjects, they basically aver to the reader. Life is worth your closest attention. Mm. Just staying on the topic for now of loss and death, one of the things that's striking in these stories, and I I won't go through all the examples, I've just picked out the two main ones, is that death comes in a very unexpected, almost shocking way. These, or at least some of them, are quite unusual deaths. So in the story called Happy, her partner Mick, man in his 70s who who has had a stroke the week before but otherwise has been pretty well up till then, is sitting up in the kitchen while she's <laughs> making dinner with a martini in front of him talking about his plans for the day and he just suddenly dies in his chair. Yes. In, yes. in the other story, the one um, that you read from at the beginning, we have a man, Jonathan, who's been in a very long, happy, loving marriage and when the two of them are in their 40s, they go into semi-retirement. They've got the life ahead of them, big plans. And his wife sits down for breakfast with a cup of tea and then she tells her husband that she thinks she'd feel a little bit better if she put her head down. She puts her head down and then she dies then and there at the yeah. table. It turns out that she had cancer and yeah. they'd had no warning of that at all. One of your characters says, a moment can come from nowhere and life is reframed. We all know that it can. 
Would you yeah. like to talk a little bit about that idea? Well, I, I, I don't think I'm bringing any news here, uh, frankly speaking. I mean, um, um, pe- people, people die as they die, and they sometimes quite un, unceremonious and um, sudden and in some ways actually quite, quite, quite comical. I remember when I was writing the first book I ever wrote, uh, Piece of My Heart, which you mentioned, um, I remember saying to Christina, well, I'm going down to my room today to kill off Mr. Lamb. And, um, and <laughs> Mr. Lamb was, Mr. Lamb was going to die. And, uh, and, and I, I, I had him die in, in an almost comical way. Um, his last words were, oops, which is what he inadvertently electrocuted himself. And, um, and, and so I, I just think that there's a certain reprieve that a story gives you uh, when you think about dying. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a great, there's a great um, essay by Walter Benjamin called The Storyteller. And, and one of the things that Benjamin says in this just wonderful essay is that we have become basically uh, to believe that death is a toxic thing. And, 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 that, and that death, death is, of course, it's terrible and it's the end of something. But he said, you know, in the 19th century, there were no rooms in which people, someone hadn't died. And, and, and I sometimes drive past the house in Mississippi where my father died, and I stop in front of the house, and I look at the house, and I think my father died in that room. And, and there is a, there is a, there's an urge in me, and of course it's more intensified as I get nearer to that moment myself. There is an urge in me to want to normalize the departure that one experiences from life and, 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 and not... And, and not aggravate it, not intensify it, not make it seem so horrible, because it's truly, as you know, as Ms. Kubler-Ross says, it is a part of life, unfortunately. And sometimes it's quite funny. And, and the more we get attuned to it, the more we will be able to rebound from it when it happens around us. Richard, does that come back to something else that you've talked about, This the relationship between bliss and bail, between yes. happiness and unhappiness? Yeah. And you, you, you had um, you quoted Henry James, I think, when you yeah. talked about this collection in saying, no themes are so human as those that reflect out of the confusion of life the relation between bliss and bale. So these writers, these stories are both serious, bale, and funny, bliss. Right. Is that what you're talking about, that concept yes, of is. death, that it's tragic, but sometimes it can just be a little bit funny as well? That's right. I mean, it's like the two faces of drama, you know, joined they are. One grimacing, one seeming to, to well, some often grimly smile, but but that that for me is the best I can do as a writer is to is to join bliss and bale, is to join happiness and unhappiness, to to, to join the, the things that things that we relish and the things that we abhor, because that seems to me to be the quiddity of life. So let's talk a little bit about happiness in this book because it is. It is one of the recurring um, themes as well. There are a lot of references to happiness and to its opposite. Early yeah. on, we have a character whose name is Happy, but she's anything but. <laughs> there are two men who are happily married men in that story who refer to their happy, happy lives. We have the widower 
whose wife has committed suicide and who is absolutely devastated by that two years later. He wonders if he'll ever feel happiness again. And he also wonders how he and his wife could have raised an unhappy child. Mm. And finally, we have a divorced man, man who's out on it. Well, not finally, there are other examples, but a man out on a date in Paris who wanted a happy outcome for that date. But something unfortunate happens and his greatest fear is that the night was in jeopardy of now becoming sad. Is the collection, this collection, also about the pursuit of happiness? And do you see happiness as something that is elusive or at least precarious, given that happiness can change so quickly to unhappiness? Yeah, I'm glad to hear you. I'm glad for you to ask me that because you can talk about this these stories in, in such a way that they seem to be about loss, in which which is only half of what they're about. Um, I, but of course, happiness is precarious. I mean, we all experience it if we live long enough. It is sometimes e e elusive. Um, but I, I suppose um, for me and probably for a lot of people, happiness is a condition that we have to invent. And so um, we, we have to say to ourselves, how I feel now is well. How I feel now is happy, even though it may not be evident to us that we are feeling that way, or maybe it is a convention tells us that we are not. I mean, I, it, it, it emanates really in my life from the practices of being a novelist and a writer, as you said, for almost 50 years. I mean, happiness to me when I was a kid was an ice cream cone, you know, a piece of watermelon, going fishing with my baby. But I spent now 50 years doing something which I'm probably not terribly well suited for, which was certainly not natural to me, but I've made a kind of a go of it. And, and I've, I've, had a, 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 I've had a mission for myself to try to be useful, to be, as a story writer, useful to the people who read my stories. When that is to say, I want the stories to be useful. And so I have had to define how I have felt over the course of this 50 years writing stories. I've had to try to define what I do because of, because of what I want um, the outcome to be as happy. This, this, this makes me happy. This is what happy is. Now, you maybe wouldn't say it was, I was very happy because maybe I don't have a smile on my face as if I had an ice cream cone. In my but I think to myself, this is what makes me happy. Even though when I was a kid, I would have said, huh? It doesn't seem very happy to me, but to me now it is. So for me, in writing these stories in the way that I have, inventing happiness on a subjective level is what happiness is. I'd like to talk to you now a little bit about your use of language. Can't help but notice, and I won't be the first to have commented on this, I know your language choice is very deliberate. And it seems to me, in this book anyway, it's at times almost playful that the adjectives and the adverbs that you choose are really quite unusual, but effective. Well, you're so, my ideal reader. <laughs> I, I have two examples, two of my favourites. In the first story, a man bumps into a woman who he hasn't seen for 35 years. They'd had a romance when they were uni students back in their 20s. They'd travelled to Iceland together. And he describes her as a woman that he had nonchalantly loved. I love that expression. Somebody else 
in one of the stories has reckless teeth. I've never mm. heard of reckless teeth before. You haven't lived in New England. And <laughs> a ceiling has continent-shaped stains, which immediately tells me what those stains look like. Yeah. You have said, I think it was in an interview that you did with Paris Review a long time ago, that you have an interest in the sound and rhythm of words as well as their meaning. Could you talk yeah. a little bit about how important the sound and the rhythm of language is to you? Well, I'll try to. Um, it, it, it may be, it may be backlot stuff. Um, writing sentences, by and large, for me, is a matter of choosing words. It's not a matter of giving body to uh, a crawl that is running in your brain, which you're trying to represent. Uh, I'm, I'm just making up sentences as I go along, which means that I'm choosing words one, one at a time. So when I get to the point in a sentence when I don't know what the word is, but I have a hole in my sentence that has to contain a word, I, I sometimes will look for synonyms, which we always do. I don't like my first choice, so I want to find my second choice. And if I can't find a synonym, which makes me happy, and I start looking for words that seems to have that seems to have the right number of beats, or the word that has the right uh, number of vowel sounds, or words that have the right number of fricatives. And so when I when I get to a sentence such as the one that you recited, it says a, a continent-sized uh, stain on the wall or on the ceiling. I'm really at that point looking for a word that has three syllables. And I'll choose I'll choose many uh, many possibles as as words that have three syllables, and maybe I like that hard C sound at the beginning. So that's just how I choose words, and 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 that's it's 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 not just perverse on my part, or, or it's not just obscure on my part, because I think then that the reader experiences that word and experiences pleasure when she or he sees it. So I'm always trying to choose words that are not just the right word uh, cognitively, but are the right word uh, also sonorously, or you might say poetically. So do you read aloud as you write? Absolutely. Mm. I mean, that, but every, I think everybody does. I don't think that's unique to me. I mean, it is certainly the case to me that because I'm dyslexic that I read everything aloud because I have a hard time getting the words in the right stall if I don't read them aloud. But I think it's true of every writer. We all read our work aloud. Everybody. Let's come back now to something that you mentioned earlier in our talk, and that's your use of detail. So your stories are always full of detail. What people are wearing, what's happening around them, the sights, the smells, the sounds. I'm just going to take one example from your first story, in Nothing to Declare, the woman that I've just mentioned who come back on the scene, they haven't seen each other for 35 years and the um, protagonist is describing her and you describe in some detail what she's wearing. She's wearing a brown linen dress, it's tailored, it has side pockets, she's wearing blue shoes and then, and here's the slight rub, she has hemispheres of sweat under her arms. So that paints a very clear picture for the reader and, in fact, I think there's a, she puts her hands in her pockets uh, at the exact time after she's asked this man whether or not he's married and he said that he is married. So all of, all of that 
detail is sort of layered into the descriptions. I know that you've spoken quite a bit about the importance for writing, I think you said earlier, of paying attention, of noticing the details. Why is that so important? For, for a whole bunch of reasons all at once. Um, for, the, for the moral and ethical reasons that I, that I mentioned earlier, to, to, to draw the reader's attention to life in such a way as to say, pay attention to life. It's all, it's all you've got. You know, relish it. Uh, be careful of it. Um, pay attention to it. Like it. Uh, embrace it. It's one thing. Uh, on a more practical, on a pra more practical level, I, I want to try to create a visual image in the reader's mind of these characters, so that what they then do can seem to be uh, more plausible. Um, and and the third and the third thing is that I want to have I want to have the word hemisphere in my sentence talking about that little arc of sweat under her arm. I, if I can get the word hemisphere into her underarm and, and make it be part of the reader's experience, then I think I've really given the reader something. So, and again, that's, it, that's unusual. That's not an expression I've ever read before. But as soon as you read it, you picture exactly what's happening. Yeah. You know exactly what she looks like. And you yeah. pretty much know how she feels or how she's feeling at that moment. Yeah, but I'm, I'm just somebody who always notices stuff like that. But I, but I don't think in so far as I am somebody who notices things like that, that I'm very different from anybody else. I just happen to have a specific use for it. So I wanted to ask you a related question. I know that you are well known for always having a notebook with you, a notebook and pen. Um, yeah, I gather <laughs> that you've had those since right back in the 1980s. So I wanted yeah. to ask you, what goes into those notebooks and how do you use them in your writing or for your writing? Well, uh, I, was, I just spent the afternoon um, transcribing things out of my notebook into my general factual outline for the novel that, that, that I'm writing. And this, is a, <clears throat> and this is a novel about Frank Bascom. It's called Be Mine. And... Um, it's about Frank's son who has ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, and he's, of course, inevitably dying. I, th I think we call, uh, here we call that motor neuron disease. I think they're the same. Well, it, well and, and generically, it, it is a motor neuron disease. It's a motor neuron degenerative disease. I happen to know a little more about it than I used to now, but it is ALS. And we also call it in America Lou Gehrig's disease. Yes. That was identified with that great hero. but. But so I, I've been planning to write this novel for years. It's been in my mind for years. And so because I know what it's, what, I know what it's basic art. A, a lot of things that I think of, I, I, sort of tr I sort of assay in terms of whether or not um, it will fit into my book. So he, I, mean, I'm just, I just have this little notebook here full of all these things that I've been transcribing this t t today. And, and here is a note which says, at the end, uh, does Frank go back to Haddam or does he stay in Rochester, Minnesota, where the Mayo Clinic is, um, because it's a better place for him to end up? So, so that, that's a question that I pose to myself as I'm writing this book. I think, okay, I'm going to get to the end of this book. And I kind of know where the end of the book occurs. 
but do I want to have Frank, once that end has occurred, return to Haddam, New Jersey, where he lives? Or do, because this is an actual virtual reality that I live in most of the time. Or do I want to have him stay in Rochester where his son has died? So um, it's, it's that kind of thing that goes into my notebook. And then I install these things into this big outline, which I have gigantic notebook full of raw material in handwriting richard in handwriting yeah i mean handwriting i mean if, i guess you can call what i do handwriting it's a terrible cursive script yeah and then i usually type it uh, i usually type out of my notebooks uh, i write by hand i write with a pen and uh, but i but my handwriting is really so aggrieved that i that i really am better off if i type my notes it's a it's a clerical it's a clerical habit that I that I started on in 1982, and and it, and it has as its, as its advantage that it's immersive because I have to really immerse myself in all this raw material, and and, and it also has its advantage that, that it is kind of indiscriminate. I can put anything into my notebook that I want to, and that means that I inevitably get the most important things in my notebook that I care about. In an interview that you gave to Paris Review in 1996, a long interview, you said that you had been successful as a writer due to what you called a rare combination of fear, an affection for language, a reverence for literature, doggedness, and good luck. You also said you married the right person. So my first question was, what was the fear? My next is, where did that reverence for literature come from? The fear is fear of failure. Absolutely, unqualifiedly. I had been, because I was dyslexic as a child, I'd failed at so many things because I, I was undiagnosed. When did, you, when did you find out that you were dyslexic? When was that condition given a name? In my 40s. So as you were young and struggling, you just thought you were struggling. You didn't know why. It's, 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 it's quite an achievement to, on my part to not conclude that I was just stupid. Mm. Um, nobody should be said, nobody ever told me I was stupid. They mm. just told me I didn't work hard enough. Mm. Ultimately, I, I overcame sort of the dyslexic condition that I have by just working harder, just mm. you know, following the dictates that my teachers told me, work harder, work harder, work harder, take your time, do your best. So, so fear, I, I, I got tired of failing, you know, the humiliation of, Having to go to summer school in the United States when all your all your friends were off having a good time in the summers and um, you know having terrible grades in mathematics and just being a dumbbell or thinking of myself as a dumbbell, I just got old. I just thought, Jesus Christ, is this, is this it for me? Can I can I not do better than this? And so I thought, well, maybe if I just blocked out all this other extraneous stuff and quit breaking into houses and stealing cars and getting into fights and doing all the things that I was really enjoying doing, maybe I could actually, in a conventional way, have a better chance at succeeding um, in conventional life. I mean, one of my views about writers is that we're, we're just ordinary Joes, but for some reason or another, we haven't been admitted into the sodality of everybody else's life. And that through the agency of our work, writing stories, if we're good at it, we get to get in. 
we get to get in on the inside. We get to be admitted. So that was my view. And the reverence for literature, where do you think that came from? Well, it came a little bit from my mother because my mother was a reader and I would see my mother reading and, and even though we didn't talk about it and, um, I, you know, you, you, kids learn in all kinds of ways. And seeing my mother sitting in a chair with a book, and I loved my mother very much, made me in a sort of sublimated way think, hmm, there must be something to this. But then there was also Mississippi. I, I lived three, four blocks from Eudora Welty. Mm. And we would see Eudora Welty at the grocery store all the time. And I remember my mother saying to me when I was eight, we were standing in a, a line of people waiting to get some food at a, at a steam table. where You'd just go and get your lunch. And my mother said to me when I was eight, she said, Richard, do you see that woman? And I looked and there was this lady. And she said, that's Eudora Welty. She's a writer. And I could tell in my mother's voice that that meant something to her. And, and, and it kind of made me think that really in the air in Mississippi, where Faulkner lived, where Walker Percy lived, where James Wright lived, where Donald had lived, that there was a permissiveness in Mississippi, which basically said, you know, a person can be a writer. In, in Mississippi, which is very conventional and hidebound and churchy and hypocritical and bigoted and horrible, uh, you were pretty well channeled into the professions if you were any good at all. Bankers, lawyers, physicians, whatever, insurance agents. So being a writer was kind of eccentric. But here was Eudora, right over there on Pinehurst Street. And to live around her made it be possible to think to yourself, well, a human being could be a writer. That, so that was probably the reverence for literature. Later on, I read Faulkner. You know, first book I ever read was Absalom. And was that once you're at college, once you'd left school? Yes, it was when I was in college. Right, right. Someone made me read it. You've done a little bit of political writing. Yes. After the um, midterm elections in the US in November 2018, you wrote a piece about those results. And you said something that I thought was really interesting. You said, I'm a novelist, which means I'm a natural optimist. Why does that follow? And are all novelists optimists, do you think? Yes, yes, all optimists are novelists, including Samuel Beckett. Um, we're, we're optimists because, first of all, we believe that attention to life is a good thing. It has a moral and an ethical virtue. And it also means that there will be a future in which what we do will be useful to someone else. And, and that mm -hmm. seems to me to be for me at least, the essence of optimism, that, that, that it's not going to end with me. I'm going to write this story. I'll be gone. Someone else may find a use for it. And I think to me, that's just, that's just great. It, it doesn't mean that, that, it'll, it'll, that it'll even happen, but it means that I think it could happen. And so that's why I do it. Richard Ford, thank you so very much for talking to me today on oh. Books, Books, Books. It's just been a, a wonderful conversation and I'm very well, grateful. And I wish you the very best of luck with the uh, promotion of this book in these very difficult times and with the writing of what I gather is going to be the final Frank book. Well, it has to be, right? I'm 76. <laughs>
It's a great pleasure to talk to you. Thanks. Nice to meet you. Real, real pleasure. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbotty.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbotty, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. Since it's a new podcast, it would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.